Hello, everybody, and welcome to the very first episode of Crime Over Wine, the only podcast with head-scratching true crime stories that are just better over a bottle of wine. I'm your host, Liam Collins, and this week I am so excited to be joined by a very special guest host. There is no one else I'd rather have on my very first episode, not only because she's such a great friend, but also because she is such a wine lover and also a storyteller. My guest this week is Claire Molay. Hello, Claire. How's it going? Hi, Liam. It's awesome. I'm so excited. And that was such a nice introduction. I'm honored. I'm so glad to be your first guest. I can't wait. Well, I am so happy you're here. And when I met Claire, we both lived in Jacksonville, North Carolina. She's a great friend. And now she makes incredible nature documentaries with the Rocky Mountain Channel in Estes Park, Colorado, which is owned by her dad. But I mostly wanted her on because I know that she is such a wine lover. So Claire, let's get to the good stuff. For our first episode, we are drinking 1924's Cabernet Sauvignon. It's from Lodi, California. I hope I'm saying that right. It's a full body of red from the heart of the Prohibition area, hence the name, and says it's a favorite at speakeasies across the country. So Claire, why don't we pop this bad boy open and give it a little taste? Was I not supposed to have opened mine already? (laughs) (laughs) I love the ambition. I love that. I haven't tasted it. I was really excited. And then I was like, I'll wait for Liam to taste it. (laughs) Oh my gosh, that's so funny. I'm pretty sure like odds are I've already had this one if we're being completely honest, but like (laughs) We'll just pretend like this is my first time drinking it because I don't really remember what it tastes like and I don't really remember if I liked it. So I don't think I've ever had it. Also, like because I whenever I drink wine, I'm just like, oh, like this tastes good, you know. And so I looked up actually like what you're supposed to look for and how you're supposed to taste the wine. And so I figured since we're doing like a wine podcast, like we should actually... Like, do it the right way, I guess. Oh, no, I'm probably missing the steps. There's probably something I'm supposed to do before I smell it, so I'll behave. So you're supposed (laughs) to let it aerate for, like, well, I guess, I think it, like, depends on the type of wine, but, like, typically, I guess it's around, like, 20 minutes. I clearly didn't do that. Um, But I also do have, like, a little aerator, too, (laughs) so we're going to pour it through that so that way I can actually, like, drink it, like, right now. Just speed it up. Now I'm jealous I don't have one. I should since okay. I'm here the wine. Okay, it is probably here. my best wine <laughs> um, investment. Okay, so what I learned you're supposed to do, I guess, is you're supposed to like swish it around a little bit. Mm-hmm. Okay. Give it a nice swish for like a solid like five to ten seconds. I think I'm gonna spill on the carpet, but <laughs> <laughs> give it a little sniff, I guess. And then you're supposed to do a little sip. That's pretty good. It is really good. Mm-hmm. I I get so it's it's a very bold red. Yeah, and I definitely get like fruity hints. It's too, super fruity at too. first. Like I got a lot of like cherry and like mm. blackberry maybe, but then at the end mm-hmm. it's kind of like um, like leathery or like tobaccoy too. So it's like the whole oh. Yeah, true. You get the whole range, huh? Mm -hmm. And it was a good price, too. So, yeah, see, that's, I was going to mention that, too. There is nothing better that I like than finding a really good bottle of wine for 10 bucks. And guess what, guys? This one costs, like, what? I think it costs you 11 bucks. Mine was 10 bucks at the the grocery store. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Yeah, it is. It might be a new, might be a new go to because it was really inexpensive and it tastes good. Yeah. That's that's the best kind of wine. Claire, what do you say we get into our first story? 
I cannot wait to hear all about this story. <laughs> okay, let's do it. So for our first episode, I'm going to tell you one of the most head-scratching stories that I have ever heard, Claire. I am telling you, every single time you think you've got this one figured out, there is a new twist in the case that flips it on its head. If you're a true crime fan, you may think you know this story, and I thought I did too, until I started reading some of the theories behind it, and it changed everything. Today, we are going to be talking about the death of Ray Rivera and the mystery near the Belvedere. Ray Rivera and his wife, Allison, were newlyweds. They were madly in love and just starting their lives together. In 2006, they had just moved to Baltimore, Maryland for Ray's job. He had just started freelancing at Stansbury and Associates. Ray wrote for this column basically called The Rebound Report, where he basically gave financial advice about rebounding failing stocks. This was not some out-of-the-blue move, though. Stansberry & Associates is actually owned by a really good friend of Ray's. His name is Porter Stansberry, and when Ray took the job, everyone knew this was just a temporary move. In fact, in May of 2006, Ray and Allison were toward the end of what was a two-year plan to be in Baltimore and were making plans to move back to Southern California. It seemed like everything was going right for the Riveras. They were successful, in love, and just overall happy. Until seemingly out of nowhere, everything seemed to change. In the middle of the night on May 15th, 2006, their house alarm goes off. And Claire, we're both like really anxious people. So I think you can agree that alarm going off in the middle of the night. My first instinct is, oh my God, call the cops. Yeah, there's no way I could. No, I'd be so. <laughs> I'd be walking around with a baseball bat. I'd never <laughs> sleep again. I hear a twig break outside and I'm like, oh my God, I'm about to die. <laughs> yeah, oh, for sure. It's definitely a murderer. <laughs> 100%. So you can probably agree with how they reacted. They called police who came and found nothing and chalk it up to probably just a squirrel or something that set off the alarm. And so the Riveras go back to sleep. But the next night, the same thing happens again. Their alarm goes off in the middle of the night. And again, they call police. And again, the police chalk it up to a squirrel or the wind or what have you. Yeah, a squirrel twice in a row makes no sense. Otherwise, it'd be happening every other night. Right. You would think that, you know, these squirrels, you know, are not just hanging out these two nights. But Allison seems to have the same exact thought. Something doesn't really sit right with her about these two instances. And even more so because of two things. The first being that that night they noticed their window had been tampered with, like beyond what a squirrel could like ever do. And the second being the look on Ray's face during both of these alarms setting off. Ray looks Terrified. And I mean, Ray is a big guy, six foot five, in shape. Nothing ever seemed to face him until that night. Yeah, I think that's kind of the chilling part is, you know, if if he was so terrified, he he must been going through something that his wife didn't know about. And I think that's a huge tell. Right. He clearly knew something. He had something inside of him saying, this doesn't feel right. But evidently, the Riveras just end up brushing it off. After all, police don't seem to think it's a big deal. So why would they? The next day, Allison has to leave three hours away for a business trip in Richmond, Virginia. So Ray makes her breakfast. He helps her to the car with her bags. And he sends her off. 
Allison finishes her day around 6.30 that night. She gets back to her hotel room and tries to call Ray, but no answer. He always answers his phone. Allison thinks it's strange, but a few minutes later, she tries him again. Still no answer. So at this point, she's pretty worried, but she actually has a colleague staying with her that day, so she tries to call her instead. And their house guest tells Allison that that night, around 6.30, Ray got a phone call and took off and left the house immediately. Oh my gosh, why? Who was on the phone? Well, so they're not sure just yet, but they get an idea much later on in the story. So we'll come back to that. The next day, when Allison still hasn't heard from Ray, she heads back to Baltimore. And when she gets home, she tells Netflix's Unsolved Mysteries that she found an open bag of chips, an open soda can, and Ray's Invisalign on the kitchen counter. Kind of like he was in the middle of a snack and then just left. She also Mm -hmm. saw that Ray's computer was still on, but her house guest says he hasn't been home since he took off the night before. So Allison starts scouring the neighborhood. She even calls in some of Ray's family from across the country and Puerto Rico to help look for him. They're asking anyone and everyone if they've seen Ray. So, but had they called the police yet at this point? So not as far as I can tell. I can only imagine maybe Allison is afraid to admit that her husband is missing or she could be under the impression that a lot of people are that maybe you have to wait a certain amount of time before you can report someone missing, which to be clear is not the case in most jurisdictions. Some departments do have internal policies about when they can make a missing persons report, but you can and should call 911 whenever someone you know is not going along with their regular routine it's better police have it on the record and everything be fine than not. So days go by of friends and family looking high and low for Ray, but still nothing until they find something in a place they say they've searched dozens of times. Six days after Ray went missing, out of the corner of their eye in a parking lot, they see Ray's car. And on the windshield is a parking ticket dated the morning after Ray went missing. That's crazy. I mean, once you find the car, then you know. Because part of me would think, did did he leave me? But finding the snack, like in the middle of a snack and then his car, but no him, I that would be a I think at that point, I would really start panicking. Right. And you would think that if he really was trying to go off and start a new life somewhere, how would he get there? If his car is still in the city, but no Ray, Mm -hmm. where's Ray? Yeah, that's that part. I think it would be when I would think this is bad. So I hope, you know, by Mm. now she's, we still don't know if she's called the police yet. It's kind of a gray area. There's never really like okay. an official, like I couldn't find anywhere that, that they, of when she actually called police and when she got police involved, but it's just kind of like magically they just start like getting involved at some point. So I would mm-hmm. imagine, you know, six days later at this point, she probably called police. Um, I've called, yeah. Right. I would think so. Where they find Ray's car is in a parking lot in the Mount Vernon neighborhood of Baltimore, just two blocks from Ray's job. So it's not totally abnormal that he's in the neighborhood, but certainly strange that he just like never comes home. In terms of the search for Ray, they consider this a break in the case. Now they have this more specific area to search. So they continue to do so. A group of people get this idea one day to get on top of a parking garage that's in the neighborhood to get a better vantage point. When they get on the top of the parking garage, they notice something odd. On the roof, just next to the parking garage, is a pair of flip-flops and a large hole. 
So they immediately call 911, and police get into this conference room on the top floor of this building where the hole was found, and the stench is overwhelming. Eight days after Ray went missing, his decomposing body is found. He is in rough shape. An autopsy later finds that he has fractured ribs, punctured lungs, lacerations of seven to nine inches, damage to his skull, protrusion of bones, and his right leg had been broken in two places. Police rule it's consistent with a high fall. I mean, obviously, this is the most mind-blowing part, clearly, but I just, first of all, I think it's fascinating that this group of people decided to look down at the Mm. roof Mm -hmm. because I just wonder how they thought of that or why they thought of it. I guess in case he had gone up there. Keep in mind too, this is eight days after he went missing. So, you know, I would imagine that at this point they think they've searched everywhere for anything. So anything out of the blue is just a little strange. So immediately the assumption is that Ray must have fallen through that hole in the roof. Police determine it's just big enough for a person of Ray's size to fit through if they came through vertically. And so the natural next question is how. So let me tell you a little bit about where this building is. It's about half a block from where Ray's car was found, so not far at all. It's also right between that parking garage where search parties were when they initially saw the hole and the Belvedere Hotel. And of course, Claire, I had to do a deep dive on this hotel, so let me enlighten you while you finish that glass. Okay. The Belvedere Hotel is about 14 stories tall, as far as I can tell. And it's actually not a hotel at all anymore. Even though that's what it's named, it actually hasn't been a functioning hotel since the 90s. Now it's more of an event space with rented condos, office space, and a bar nightclub on the top floor. It's a bit of a ritzy spot, and its website says it's known for being a place where, quote, presidents, royalty, and Hollywood's most famous have stayed. So I kind of picture it like the Baltimore version of the Ritz-Carlton, kind of like anyone who's anyone stayed at the Belvedere when visiting Baltimore. And again, it's just a few blocks from Ray's job at Stansbury and Associates. So do police search the Belvedere then? I guess I'm kind of curious, you know, it's a couple blocks from his job, So what's the significance here, you know? What's the connection? Right. So that's obviously their next step. And in fact, it's the basis for a lot of their theories for how Ray ended up coming through the hole that day. Their first theory is that Ray may have fallen from the very top of the Belvedere, a 10 to 11 story fall to the roof of the building where Ray was found. But police have some questions about this one. And frankly, I do too. Police determined that from the base of the roof of the Belvedere to that hole is about 45 feet horizontally. And so I'm not a scientist, but I'm guessing police probably talked to some and decided Ray would have had to have had a sprinting start to gain enough momentum to get out that far. But at this point, police were able to determine that those flip-flops search crews found on the roof were Ray's. And though they were really scuffed as though he was running when he wore them, They raised doubts that Ray would have been able to gain enough speed on the roof in flip-flops to reach that hole. On top of that, according to the Land of the Unsolved podcast, to get to the roof of the Belvedere, you would have had to go through a locked door, staff staircases, pass guards, and through the nightclub on the top floor to get to the roof. And Ray's family says he had never been there before as far as they knew, so how would he have known to get there on his own? So police 
start looking at a different theory. They start looking at the possibility that Ray climbed out onto a ledge off the top floor of the hotel. It's a pretty narrow ledge, but not impossibly narrow. But to family, this seems even more unlikely because not only does it not explain how Ray got to that hole in the roof. Remember, police say he would have had to have had a running start and surely you can't do this on this ledge. But the only way to get to the ledge is through a window in the nightclub. And I just can't imagine he would have been able to get there without anyone seeing him and no one ever reported seeing Ray anywhere in the hotel that night. And surely someone would have seen a six foot five man climbing through a window onto a ledge and off to his death. But on top of that, family says neither of these theories make any sense to them because Ray was terrified of heights, like to the point where Allison tells Unsolved Mysteries that Ray didn't even like to get on the ladder to dress their Christmas tree. So immediately they say, no way Ray got up on that 14-story building on his own accord in any way, shape, or form. Police say that more evidence they found on the roof doesn't appear to line up with a fall from that height. Along with Ray's scuff flip-flops, they found Ray's glasses and cell phone, which were both a little banged up, but by and large, they were fine. Yeah, this part is weird. I mean, the flip-flops yeah. stick out to me too because I think it shows even more what a hurry he was in leaving mm-hmm. because you're going, who knows? I mean, if he knew he was in danger, flip-flops probably aren't your choice shoe, but it was like you mm-hmm. just had to get out of the house. So that's weird right. to me. And then also, yeah, I mean, there's no way the amount of injuries he had that you told me about and then this the phone and glasses are scuffed. I mean, it it doesn't make any sense. And why are they on the roof? Why are they why would they be left on the roof? Right. Well, yeah, so please have a lot of questions about that too and like clearly like, you know, the fall was enough to break his like legs in two spots, but not enough to break his glasses. Like, I have questions about that, surely. But police say a fall from that height would have damaged those items so much more than they were, of course. So that just isn't sitting well with them. So they pretty much ignore that theory for the most part. So police's next theory is that maybe he came from the parking garage on the other side of the building. This ledge was closer to the hole, about 20 feet away and about 20 feet up from the roof. But police determine that although it's more scientifically feasible that Ray could have made it to that hole from there, they say the fall would have been largely survivable and would not have caused the severity of damage that Ray had suffered. So they quickly throw that theory out as well. Yeah, well, and also if you were going to jump off a building, you wouldn't jump into another building. Like (laughs) that makes no sense. Yeah, so that, that, yeah, I am right there with you for sure. So police continue their investigation looking for answers and the information police are about to find, or should I say not find, is about to make this investigation very complicated. Okay, so in other words, we need more wine. (laughs) So Claire, how are you enjoying your glass of wine? It's amazing. I don't know why you said glass. <laughs> We're beyond. <laughs> <laughs> bottle. Bottle. I think, yeah, I did notice that, 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 you know, part of that glass just like magically refilled itself. Like I did notice that. I don't know. Maybe it's another unsolved mystery. <laughs> I take no responsibility. (laughs) (laughs) Someone's breaking into your house and pouring you wine. That sounds Mm -hmm. like the robber that I want for sure. No complaints. I think she, he, they've been around for a while. Daily problem, but. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, I feel that. I think they're coming to my house too. And like they can do it whenever they want. 
<laughs> oh my gosh. We're going to have to do something about it. But the wine is delicious to answer your question. Yeah, I do. I, the more I like drink it too, like this, like the sweeter it gets almost like it's kind of like this kind of interesting, like maybe it's just, I don't know, maybe I'm like noticing more. No, I think maybe, I don't even know what I'm talking about, but I think maybe as you drink it, like it becomes less full bodied because your taste buds get accustomed to it. And then you get more of those like tart and sweet notes. I don't know. So Let's get back to Ray's story. So police are continuing to investigate this case. They go door to door in the hotel, but no one reports to notice anything suspicious that night and don't remember seeing Ray. They also ask security for surveillance video. And Claire, do you want to know what they find? Liam, what do they find? Nothing. The security camera on the roof of the Belvedere was turned off and any other camera throughout the rest of the hotel just skipped right over the hour Ray was believed to go missing and picked right back up after. Now I'm getting like inside job vibes. (laughs) Well, that can't be a coincidence, right? I mean, what are the odds that, you know, the one day that police need to see, they can't Mm -mm. see? It's not. No. So there's something planned going on here. So at this point, police were able to determine that the call Ray took the night he went missing came from his jobs at Stansbury and Associates. But for whatever reason, and I can only imagine this is maybe like because of data technology, they're unable to determine who exactly the call came from, but were able to tie it back to his job. So naturally, police go to Stansbury and Associates to ask some questions, and they are shocked to find out that employees are given a gag order by none other than the owner of the company, Ray's best friend, Porter Stansberry. The Belvedere's a couple, a few blocks away from his job. The call comes from his job. There's premeditated things going on here. I'm assuming these are powerful people with money who... So, yeah. Yeah. And you're not the only one who's thinking that. He's a pretty popular theory for who may, at the very least, knows more than what they're putting on. And certainly, like, a gag order is, like, pretty fishy, right? So at some point, I read that Porter said he didn't want to speak with police because he had already been investigated for fraud. And more on that in a second. So I figured it makes sense to take some time to talk about him. Porter Stansberry and Ray Rivera were friends for years, and I read somewhere that they may have met in high school. And so Allison tells Unsolved Mysteries that she's confused why he wouldn't want to help. But after the documentary was published, Porter spoke with the Baltimore Sun, which is the first time that I can tell he spoke publicly about Ray's death. He denies any involvement in Ray's disappearance and says he did not place a gag order on employees. Now, I'm not a lawyer, but I do believe that under certain language in gag orders that you're actually prohibited from admitting publicly that a gag order exists. Otherwise, that like voids the entire thing and anyone under the order can say whatever they want. But I'm sure some legal expert who's listening to this is going to correct me on that in some way. Porter says he actually encouraged his employees to talk with police and even set up a reward for information on race case. He also says something that I find interesting. He says the documentary actually incorrectly reported that Ray still worked at Stansbury when he died and that he'd actually quit about six months before his death. Hmm. That's all. So if he can't publicly admit to the gag order, then it's going to be easy to say he never set one. 
right? Right. Like, uh, like, I mean, that's the only thing you can say if that's true. I mean, I like, again, like this is just my like very limited knowledge on gag orders and like non-disclosure agreements and that kind of thing. Um, but I am pretty sure that under certain circumstances, like if you say something then like, and like admit that like, yes, I put this person under a gag order, then like it's all over. So like, what else can you do? But you know, you can either stay quiet or you can just deny, deny, deny. Well, right. And I mean, when, if there's, if the police are saying there's a gag order and so they truly couldn't talk to anyone, then there had to have been one because Mm. otherwise somebody, the police would have gotten somewhere, but, Mm. and he's the owner of the company. Who else is going to, who else is going to set it? Well, and you would think that like, if like, we would know so much more if like, if somebody who had such a close relationship with him were, was actually cooperating with police the whole time. So Mm -hmm. that's the only mention of that I could find that he had actually quit his job six months before Ray had died. Everything else I read said Ray had still worked there and WBAL, the NBC affiliate in Baltimore reported that he was still working there, but only under contract work doing like a video production gig. But so maybe most family members still consider that working there and didn't really feel that relevant to share or maybe Ray just didn't think of it and didn't really tell his family. I don't know. It's kind of like a bit of a gray area there, but I'm going Mm -hmm. to come back to this point at the end of the episode. So definitely remember that. So Claire, remember when I said that Porter had been investigated for fraud previously? Yes. And that's also triggering a lot of things in my mind. So, right. And again, you're not the only one. So that actually tied back to the exact column that Ray had been contributing to the rebound report. The SEC had investigated the company for publishing false financial advice. And according to the Baltimore Sun, Porter was fined $1.5 million in August of 2007, more than a year after Ray's death. Porter says that that had nothing to do with Ray and the Baltimore Sun also mentioned that the investigation began as early as 2003, which was a year before Ray started working at Stansbury. Okay. So he was fined a year after Ray's death. Mm -hmm. Um, But Porter's saying that fine had nothing to do with Ray. So, yeah, so he's saying the investigation had nothing to do with Ray and began, like, way before he even worked there, but it was still about the same column um, that Ray had eventually been contributing to. I mean, an investigation starting before he worked there, but they're also best friends. To me, it's screaming, you know, what does... What does Ray know? Right. And I couldn't find anything that like pointed to like what specifically he was being investigated for. Like, yes, it said like, you know, providing false financial advice and like, you know, talking about stocks in ways to rebound stocks. And, you know, that advice was not good, Um, but I couldn't necessarily find exactly like what led to this big, huge investigation. And like one point five million dollars is not chump change. At this point, Allison is still like absolutely distraught. Her husband she knows and loves is still gone and she still can't figure out exactly why or how but she's about to find out that she may not have known ray as well as she thought she did police rule ray's death a suicide but his family is so unconvinced they say there's no way he killed himself he was happy he had so much to look forward to he and allison were just about to move back to california and there was absolutely no history of mental illness so at this point allison decides to go to the medical examiner herself and what the me tells her absolutely rocks her world Allison tells Unsolved Mysteries that the examiner says, quote, I know what they're trying to do, 
but we're not closing the case. Oh my God. And what do they mean by that? Like, what do they know? (laughs) Well, no one knows. And Allison still doesn't even seem to know to this day. But what we do know is that the medical examiner does not rule Ray's death a suicide. They rule Ray's banner of death as undetermined, meaning there is not enough evidence to rule it a suicide or a homicide. Hmm. And so why, yeah, why do they say that? Well, the ME disagrees with what police had initially said about Ray's death. They say Ray's injuries are not totally consistent with the high fall. And what points them to that is that Ray has a compounded fracture only on his right leg. And they say that is not totally consistent with a fall from where police are saying Ray must have jumped from. Okay. So now, I mean, I guess it's a little better than just closing it as a suicide, but saying it's neither is, or saying it's, that we're not getting much farther. Right. I can't imagine this makes Allison feel any better. I feel like it just gives her more questions than answers. And so completely distraught, Allison goes home. And at some point, Allison takes a look around Ray's computer and taped behind his computer, Allison finds a note that is folded up into a teeny tiny piece of paper that she says is nonsense. Allison tells Unsolved Mysteries that she understands the things on the note individually, but together they make no sense. And so Claire, most of it is like too small for you to read, but I'm going to send it to you also. But I also, as you can see, transcribed it for you. So that way you can actually read it um, Uh in full. So one second, I'm going to send it to you. Okay. I'm going to drink more wine to prepare for this note. (laughs) Maybe the more wine I drink, the more sense it will make. (laughs) Honestly, I think I agree. I think we can actually probably solve this case if we drink this entire bottle together. I do my best work when I've had a bottle. Brothers and sisters, right now around the world, volcanoes are erupting. What an awesome sight. Virtus Junxit Mors non separabit, whom virtue unites, death will not separate. That was a well-played game. Congratulations to all who participated. I hope you enjoyed it. But it was time to wake up, so here I am. I'd like to welcome those who accepted our invitations for membership during the game. We couldn't have done it without you. I took on this endeavor to find the truth, but not for its own sake in accepting this quest for the truth. I hope to make myself with the help of others into a man worthy and ready to receive it. Members of the council, please note that I will lend careful consideration to the traditional responsibilities in light of these proceedings, and I will satisfy the standard request of this council within the appropriate time. Again, well done to all who participated. I expect the council has invited all the players who gave their lives to this pursuit back so they might join us here. Fare thee well, Rob Rosenberg. Before I continue with my instructions for the council and claim the prize for my service, I'd like to allow Porter Stansberry to claim his prize. Now, Porter, don't blank these words by claiming something I'll just take back. Then it lists names he asks the council to make five years younger. Porter Stansbury, if he didn't do it himself. Brothers and sisters, our land of attachments has seen many ideas become new innovations since my game began. Now it lists some tech words like DVDs and JPEGs. 
my primary residence, which includes a beautiful piece of property in northern Argentina. And I'm told the biggest mansion in Buenos Aires. Well done, Porter. In Europe, you can visit me at the flat in Nice or in Madrid. Although if I'm in Spain, I'll probably be at the castle. In Asia, you will be able to find me in Thailand. Another job. Well done, Porter. I will keep the two houses in Los Feliz, California, and the one in San Francisco, although I'll be looking for a new place in Baltimore and perhaps some other cities. I'd like to briefly mention some movies, books, and music I found very inspired and compelling. I'd love to meet any of you who helped contribute to these works. What in the world? <laughs> yeah, same. So, I mean, you'll notice, like, my glass of wine is, like, almost completely oh, empty. Oh, my God. I that. need, like, several gulps. <laughs> <laughs> so, I should also mention that, you know, most of the transcriptions were, you know, written by things that I found on the internet. So, like, most other people have kind of figured out what this says. But, yeah, I mean, what do you what do you make of that? Okay, so the the list of houses and castle and things, mm-hmm. that all sounded like code. And then he says, I'd be looking for a new place in Baltimore. So mm. did he know he was getting into something before he moved mm. to Baltimore and was that part of this game? I mean, this mm. is insane. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, I'm definitely with you that like this entire letter sounds like code. But also, like, if I was Allison reading all this, I'd be like, wait hold on, like you have houses in Spain and Europe and and like all these houses in California. Like I never read anything that she knows anything about this. So like she has to have all sorts of questions that she yeah. probably assumes that he has this whole life without her. Because otherwise I would assume it's all code, but the moving to Baltimore and buying a house is real. So then what else is real? That's what keeps throwing me off too. Yes. It bothered me in the episode so much. They didn't talk about the fact that like, and I don't know, I only watched the episode, so I could be wrong. But in the episode, they showed her, they showed Allison untape this note from the back of the computer. Or it was, you know, a reenactment or I'm not sure. But was it actually taped to the back of the computer and why? I mean, why would it be? That's so bizarre. And my question is, how long has it been there? Yeah. Because you can see, like, in the in the picture that it's pretty old. Like, it's clearly been, like... Through like, some stuff. Right. And there's, like, even some water stains and that kind of thing. Like, you can, like, it just... It doesn't feel like this is something that you write right before you run off to your death. No, it sounds like something he wrote before he moved there. And it it seems like he had it that kept there because he needed to refer back to it because why mm-hmm. does it need to be at the computer? Well, and almost like he had that back there, like just in case something happened to him. Yeah. But there's also one line that sticks out to investigators. It's the line that says whom virtue unites death shall not separate. Claire, have you ever heard of the Freemasons before reading about this case? 
I don't know. Does he have something to do with the Masons? Is that where we're going? Well, so it's interesting. Well, you're about to find out. But it's interesting (laughs) to me because I've never heard of the Freemasons, like the word, but I've heard of kind of like the idea of them the more I looked into it. So when investigators put that line into the almighty Google, they find connections to the Freemasons, a secret society known for rituals and practices. So I looked it up and in Freemasonry, that line relates to what's called the Lodge of Perfection. And when I looked that up, I found that in masonry, that is, quote, an adventure that is more a beginning than an end, only a milestone of a man's path of personal growth. So, of course, I also had to do a deep dive into Freemasonry. The Freemasons are a secret society, or I should probably say they used to be because they're clearly not so secret anymore, but they're known for secret passwords, ceremonies, and handshakes. They are the oldest fraternal organization dating back to the Middle Ages. It's a lifestyle most popular in the British Isles, but it is also popular in the United States. It has an estimated membership count of 2 million to 6 million people, and people believed to be members include George Washington, Ben Franklin, FDR, Winston Churchill, Henry Ford, and Buzz Aldrin. Now, those combinations of names definitely stood out to me because if you remember, the Belvedere Hotel claims to be a hotel where presidents, royalty, and Hollywood elite stayed. Oh, you gave me chills. So... (laughs) And this is just me talking, just to be clear. But what if that hotel became some kind of like secret meeting place for Freemasons? And that tradition continued at least through 2006. Now, this might sound crazy, but what if this wasn't Ray's first time at the Belvedere? What if he frequented the hotel and knew exactly how to get onto the roof? Or maybe even worse, how to run in with someone who did. I mean, that's exact. You said, oh, I have chills, Liam. I need to take a drink because I have goosebumps. <laughs> oh, me too, Claire. The very first time I heard um, in the episode and when you said his family said he had never been to the Belvedere. Well, he has a secret note behind his computer. He has all this crazy. We don't know that. You know, his wife trusted him. She's not keeping tabs. And so if he's having... I just completely agree. I'm like, we don't know that he has never been to the Belvedere. Well, I think we can both agree at this point in the story that clearly there were so many things in Ray's life that Allison just didn't know about. Um, But it's a little interesting because Allison kind of leads on that she may have had an idea. Okay. Interestingly enough, Allison tells Unsolved Mysteries that Ray was fascinated with secret societies before he died. In fact, WBAL reported that he had expressed interest in becoming a Freemason himself. He had gone to the Maryland Lodge, the local chapter of Freemasons, to ask about membership just before he died. And the day he died, he had bought a book called Freemasons for Dummies, which I actually just can't help but giggle over because when I think of for dummies books, I think of like people wanting to get into like mundane hobbies like knitting, not joining secret (laughs) societies, but that's just me. Yeah, that's bizarre. Like how to join this bizarre secret society. Exactly. I mean, I think I've bought like 
how to bird watch for dummies. <laughs> right. Exactly. Not like how to like become like a member of like some bizarre underground organization that like may or may not have contributed to your death for dummies. Well, and if it's such a secret society, why would there be books about how to do it? Which makes me think, is he this outsider that's trying to get in? And did that is this like extreme like frat hazing type of thing? Because he's like the the little underdog here because he's reading a book about it does he feel left out so that was my that was part of my theory too and i'm about to get there as well but obviously i had to look this book up first freemasons for dummies is written by christopher hodap or at least it was in 2021 its description says it peeks behind the door of your local masonic lodge and explains the meanings behind rituals rites and symbols of the organization it says that in the book you'll learn about what it takes to become a member and what you can expect when you join how lodges are organized and what goes on during masonic ceremonies the basic beliefs and philosophies of freemasonry including how masons contribute to charity and society in general and the origins behind some of the wild myths and conspiracy theories surrounding freemasonry and how to deep bunk most of them see it's just kind of like spooky to me that like you have these secret ceremonies they could literally be anything it could be dropping you off a building yeah exactly i i don't know i mean everyone's just kind of assumed they must not be bad because like yeah we i have a masonic lodge down the street i have i've seen an ad in a magazine for them and like i just But I'm like, but if nobody actually knows what they're doing except them and they don't share it, I mean, what? Mm. Well, and it also seems a little odd that like, okay, you're this like secret societies, but you're also buying ads in magazines and like you can just like go to Barnes and Noble and like read all about how to become a member. It's just so bizarre that it's like, it's so normal. And at the same time, it's so, so strange and like what's actually going on. Well, and also, like, just to be clear, just I feel like I have to have, like, a little disclaimer here. Like, there's nothing been officially tying that, you know, this organization to Ray's death. But my new theory about Ray that, you know, just has me thinking, and this is just me talking, what if Ray didn't visit that lodge and buy that book to learn more about joining the Freemasons? But what if he did that to get ahead of them? Ooh, all right. So, but like, what do you mean? Well, so Ray was clearly distraught and worried leading up to his disappearance. And I keep coming back to the two nights before Ray's death when their house alarm kept going off. What if Ray knew or thought someone was trying to get to him? What if he was trying to learn as much as he could about the people who he thought was behind it so that he could be prepared, but they got to him first? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's super, super interesting, and it does make sense um, because it seems like he knew something was happening and it was going to be happening soon. He obviously knew the the house alarm was not um, a coincidental squirrel two nights in a row when it had never happened before. (laughs) Definitely not a squirrel, to be clear. I think we can rule out the squirrels did not kill Ray. Yeah, and so now I'm, like, wondering. So, but the note he wrote, clearly, I feel like, connects him to knowing something about some secret society possibly the freemasons especially with that line so what did he already know there are so many mentions too of porter stansbury in that note too so like Mm -hmm. clearly like without a doubt he's involved in 
you know, whatever organism, like whatever Ray was being tied up in, like clearly Porter was at least involved, involved. you know? Yeah. As I was reading that, it's like, good, good work, Porter, good work again, Porter, like Mm -hmm. that. And that does sound so like boys club Mm -hmm. fraternity, like so bizarre. So are they in the secret society together or maybe he's already joined with Porter, but maybe he's reading this book to try to like understand some things he doesn't understand. Maybe there's like some ritual he's worried about or something he's worried about and he wants to, I don't know. Yeah, I could, I could definitely see that. That is really interesting. I mean, clearly there's something in his brain saying this isn't right. Whatever it is, it's not right. And I need to figure out how to avoid it. So weeks go by since Ray's death and the investigation is still leading to a manner of death of suicide. At some point in this investigation, the lead detective, who is the only law enforcement official I could find who was not convinced Ray had killed himself, was removed from the case. The Land of the Unsolved podcast got documents from the investigation and reported that notes on the case just abruptly stopped in June of 2006, just weeks after Ray had died. They said it was almost like the case was heating up more and more and more, and they were getting more and more leads, and then they just stopped. So police continued to insist that Ray died by suicide, treating Allison like a grieving widow who refuses to accept that her husband had killed himself. But to this day, Allison insists that her husband was murdered. She believes that Ray may have stumbled across something he shouldn't have, and she can't stop asking the same questions we all have about this case. Why did Ray leave the house in such a rush that night? Who was on the other line? How did Ray get to that hole in the roof? And what did the M.E. mean when they said they knew what they were trying to do? And Claire, obviously the why and who are both so important to Ray's loved ones so they can finally get some peace. But I can't help but wonder, how? How did Ray get to the roof that night without anyone seeing him? And how on earth did he end up in the middle of that ceiling when scientifically it feels impossible from any angle? Yeah, I mean, you took the words out of my mouth again because I probably sound crazy, but I was picturing like, you know, if we're talking about these high-end people, these wealthy people in these secret societies, what if he got dropped from a... Like a plane or a helicopter. Hey, you're not the only one who thinks that, Clara. I'll just say that and we're about to get to that, actually. Mm, Perfect. All right. So tell me about that. So Ray died almost 17 years ago as of this recording. And so there have been a lot of new theories online. The first I saw is someone seeming to believe a helicopter may have dropped Ray through that roof. I kind of like this one, kind of like it sounds like you do, Claire, Mm -hmm. only because it's the only theory that has any sort of explanation as to how he could have gone through the roof at that point when it seemed impossible from any other angle. But no one ever reported seeing a helicopter, and surely someone would have noticed a helicopter flying that low and dropping a body on top of a building in downtown Baltimore. But maybe I'm crazy, but that sounds pretty (laughs) unlikely. Hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, that does seem unlikely, but what if, I don't know, what if for some reason, like where they were at, it wouldn't be noticeable that they dropped something or when you're in Baltimore, you might see lots of helicopters. I mean, did they ask the right people? Yeah. I mean, I feel like if somebody came up, if the police came to me and said, did you see a helicopter on July 7th? 
mm-hmm. you know, two weeks ago, I'd be like, I have no idea. Mm. I don't know. <laughs> like, yeah, that's fair. I do. And I but, also do think that like maybe police probably didn't say, hey, did you see a helicopter or an airplane? They probably said, hey, did you see anything suspicious? And like a helicopter to me just doesn't like isn't, isn't suspicious. suspicious. So like maybe I didn't think of it. All right. So another theory I find really interesting was actually written in a book called Ray Rivera, Suicide or Homicide. It's written by Miriam Moya. In the book, she makes the case that Ray actually died in a hit and run. Now, remember when I said the M.A. ruled that Ray's injuries were more compounded on one side of his body? Yeah, yes. So... In the book, Moya makes the case that this is actually more consistent with someone who's been hit by a car, not someone who fell from a high elevation. And so some people seem to believe that if this is true, then maybe Ray was either stashed and his death was staged on the roof of that building, or he was hit by a car that was driving fast enough to launch Ray's body on top of the building and through that hole, which, I don't know, seems very unlikely. And certainly someone would have noticed a person flying, what, three stories high. So that doesn't really seem to add up. And it also doesn't really fully explain the hole if it was a staged scene, because why would they think, oh, let, like, you know, let me just, like, put this hole in the roof where they're going to stash a body here? Um, and also, too, I should mention um, at this point as well that, you know, a running theory is that the reason that the glasses and the phone weren't as damaged was because they were placed there after. They were not dropped from a high elevation, that his, the entire scene was just a stage scene. But I just, it just feels very specific to say, oh, yes, he must have dropped through the through a hole in the roof, and this is the scene I'm going to stage. So it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense as to how he ended up there. Right, because if you hit him with a... That's what I was saying. If you hit him with a car, and even if that was preemptive, what benefit is it to make it look like he fell through a roof? I mean, may, maybe if you may, you're like, we're going to make this so confusing, no one will ever solve it, but... Which would, I guess, be genius, but it's just really weird. And also, it seems really, really stupid if you're staging this to, like, have the phone and glasses slightly scuffed up and, like, placed there. Wouldn't you, like, smash them? Well, unless I'm thinking, like, maybe if they dropped it from that parking garage, like, they threw it off the ledge, like... You know, they said, you know, that, you know, that fall would be survivable. So maybe like they were just scuffed enough for 20, for 20 feet up, not necessarily, you know, so you know what I mean? didn't think it through enough that he would have not made it that far out. Right. He would have. Yeah. Right. So that that feels that feels like the right answer to me that clearly whoever did this threw his glasses and his cell phone from the top story of that parking garage. That feels to me like the most logical conclusion as to how they ended up in the condition they were. Um, So the last theory is one I've become particularly obsessed with. It ties Ray's death to a man named Tom Hinkling. Tom also worked for Stansbury and Associates around the same time as Ray and also died under mysterious circumstances. Claire, do you remember when I said Porter claimed Ray stopped working for him about six months before his death? Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Well, so Tom died around the same time that Porter said Ray quit. There are very few details about Tom's death that I could find, but basically Tom was visiting his daughter in Zambia at the time when he was hit by a car and died. This is interesting because on that note, Ray left behind his computer. There are a list of names Ray, quote, wants to be made five years younger by the council. Now, all of the last names on the list are redacted, but there is a Tom on the list with the exact same unique spelling, T-H-O-M. An unexplained death suggested that Tom's death may have been a turning point for Ray. And I couldn't tell if that was suggesting that drove Ray to be suicidal or if it was suggesting that Ray may have been murdered still. But let's say Allison was right. What if Ray was onto something that he knew Tom had also stumbled across right before his death? What if Tom was hunted down in Africa and the same people went after Ray? I got chills when you said hit by a car because this other woman wrote that she said it sounded like a car accident. So if this is something, okay, so now it's making sense. Like maybe these people are like, well, if everybody's hit by a car, they'll start making like connections. So we have to make this look like something else, but he can't be laying on the street because they'll find him too fast. And if, you know, they said for where he fell, he would have had to get a running start. Or mm-hmm. if he came from right the parking garage, then the the angle of the fall would have made mm-hmm. sense. But and it the injuries would have made sense. Mm-hmm. But he was already mm-hmm. hit by the cart. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... Every time I think about him being, you know, falling from the top of the Belvedere, I just, I keep going back to, like, police keep saying that there's no way he could have made it to that hole. Like, like that the distance was just too far. So it just didn't make any sense. But that's the only elevation that you could have gotten to that would have caused that kind of injury and would have been fatal. So I just... Ah, like, I don't know. I told you this case just brings you circles and circles and circles. I don't know. The Tom thing and the hit by a car thing. Now I'm thinking, but by no, I think hit by a car was on purpose then. And this is how they do Mm -hmm. it. But then why don't they find, like you said, circles. Mm -hmm. If they, why go to the trouble to doing that and staging it and not just kill him another way? Well, unless like you said, like, well, let's just make this as confusing as possible so that, Nobody figures out what the heck's going on. You're spending so much time figuring out how he died that you're not figuring out who. But I, if I was an investigator, I would be like thinking about this to this day working. I mean, and where's the car then that hit him? If we were to like right. go with that theory, then if that that's poses a, theory. a new question. Right. It just feels far-fetched. It just feels like a little bit of a reach to, th- to say that he was just thrown up into this building and no one saw a thing. Well, yeah, and you wouldn't be able to plan that. And clearly there's so many strange things mm-hmm. here that, like, he knew he was going to die. He knew something was mm-hmm. going on. This was premeditated. And yeah. so an accidental car accident makes just as little sense as a suicide at this point. I totally Because agree. why would he run out of the house, you know? I totally agree. And you know what? We may never know the full story of what happened to Ray, but we do know that Allison still wants and deserves conclusive answers. 
Oh, well, I'm going to toast to Allison because I cannot imagine going through that. Allison deserves all this wine. <laughs> yeah, and more. Well, that's it for our very first episode of Crime Over Wine. Claire, thank you so much for being my first guest. Thank oh, yeah, you. I love for you. So- Claire, I need, I think the people all deserve to know where can we find your work about the fascinating world of the nature of, of Colorado online? Where, where, can we, where can people find you? Um, yeah, if you look up the Rocky Mountain channel, my dad has a cool TV station that I got the joy of doing some work with. Just Google the Rocky Mountain channel. Um, his other company is Nick Molloy Productions, which is like his big documentaries that I got inspiration from. But I've done a lot of work doing shining light on a lot of the local stories that people don't know much about in this little town that I'm from. And, uh, yeah, so if you just look me up, you can look up Claire Molay, Estes Park. You can look up the Rocky Mountain Channel. Claire Molay, you should find me. So many incredible <laughs> stories in Colorado and beautiful Colorado. Claire, thank you so much for coming on. I'm so honored that you're my first guest. And thank you so much for listening. We are going to put all of our sources on our website so you can read everything for yourself and, you know, probably come up with a couple theories or so. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and we will see you next week for another episode of Crime Over Wine. Proud member of the Podnuga Network.